What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben, and we are here with our super producer, as always, ladies and gentlemen, Noel the Hot Rod Brown. The Hot Rod, I like it. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty cool one, yeah. uh, which lets you know, of course, that today, in a way, we're talking about racing. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Noel the Land Speed Record Brown, maybe. Yeah. Or LSR, just to keep it short. <laughs> nice. Uh, Noel uh, Salt Flat Brown. <laughs> it's not bad. I like it. Uh, so this came to us actually uh, from a listener. This today's topic, correct? Yes, it came from uh, from a listener who goes by the name of Jake, but uh, also known as Ratfink. And extra credit, <laughs> by the way, on that because right. that's really cool. Of course, going back to Ed Roth, you know, Ed, Ed Big, Big Daddy, Daddy Roth. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We did a whole show on Ed Roth, and uh, again, another interesting character. But yeah. Jake wrote in, and uh, this is actually the second idea we've we've uh, culled from Jake's note here because he mentioned. Um, Smokey Eunuch as well, and one we've done in the recent past. Right. And uh, now we're on to another one that he mentioned that I, I couldn't believe we hadn't done one on this guy yet. Another legend in motorsport, mm-hmm. Mickey Thompson. Mickey Thompson, yes, it's a true story. Uh, we have not yet done an episode on Mickey Thompson, and when we read the email, we looked at each other in a, oh, what moment, but then yeah. we decided to rectify that today. Yeah, I, I feel as if we've mentioned Mickey Thompson a few times sure. over the years. However, he has not had his own show, and that's the case with a lot of the topics that people come up with. You know, they write in and, and tell yeah. us, hey, I noticed you haven't done a show on this, and we think, Wait, we talked about that. We had to have had a show on that, because there was another one recently. Someone mentioned the Ford Edsel, and, yeah. and I said, you've got to be kidding me. Have we've, we not? We, yeah. We've talked about the Edsel, I would say, at length. Yeah, sure. we have not had a show on the Ford Edsel yet, so we'll we'll probably make good on that sometime soon. Yeah, but, that'll be a good one. Um, um, again, this is another one that I just was surprised we we haven't hit yet. Yeah, we've talked about drag racing, talked about hot rodding, uh, we've talked about land speed records, and Mickey Thompson's involved in all of these and more and way more, way way more. So, uh, where do you want to begin here, Ben? I mean, how far back do you want to go? Uh, let's see. Do you want to go? Back to when he was born, and just go through that real quick, or how do you want? How about fast, and then and then we'll get on to the yeah. good stuff because yeah. the good stuff starts when he's about twenty or thirty years old. Right, right. So he is born in California in nineteen twenty eight, uh, December seventh. And uh, Scott, you're absolutely right that his 
his past really uh, picks up to the good stuff, as you say, in the in the twenty or when he is in his twenties, because for a while he was working at the L.A. Times, uh, but he always wanted to race. This is a guy who was born waiting to hop in a hot rod. Yeah, think you know? about the, the time that we're talking about here. In his 20s, this would have been the late 1940s right? Uh, through the early 1950s, and that was right at the, the birth of the American hot rod scene. And he was way, way into this at this point. Drag racing wasn't a thing yet, really. Uh-huh. Uh, not not officially. I mean, I know that they were kind of doing it on the streets. It was, uh, it was a, uh, a kind of a, a subculture thing at that point. Um, but it was just starting to become kind of a sanctioned event. And uh, here he is, you know, he's working at the L.A. Times, as you mentioned. He's running the press, I think. He was a, uh, a pressman. Yeah. yeah, so he was actually operating the printing press, I believe, uh, for a while. And, uh, you know, doing his day job, trying to keep the hot riding thing going. Right. Um, would much rather be doing the hot riding thing uh, as a career. Bought his first car at the age of 14 and rebuilt several before he was old enough to drive. So here's a guy that's yeah. mechanically skilled. And, and we hear this over and over again in these people that we profile is that right from the very beginning, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, what would you call it? Not the, not the shining, I guess, but it's, uh, it's just the touch, the magic touch. You know, like yeah. people that can fix anything. And Mickey Thompson was another one of those guys that could fix anything because he, he, he was a, uh, you know, he's a driver, of course, but he was auto, also an automobile technician. And I don't know if that's really going far enough to say that he was, uh, he was a good automobile technician. He was, he was a great automobile technician, yes. great fabricator, mm-hmm. um, a great um, designer because he designed his own cars. He built his own cars. He was a prodigy. Uh, definitely. This guy was, a, again, a mechanical genius. And, um, you know, much later on in life, I think he was he was uh, recognized for that. But, right. um, whoa, I will get to that because oh, I nearly gave something away. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, we will say at the top here, this is probably now, this is the best time to say it, Scott, uh, that this story has some twists and turns. And some of our younger listeners may not know exactly. But if you're hanging out listening to this on your phone or by your computer, uh, no spoilers. Uh, and, and, and don't Google it. Uh, but this this is an interesting story. Yeah, just wait to the end and see what happens. It's, yeah, yeah. it's not that long. It's only like it's going to be like forty minutes away or something. So <laughs> just hang in there with us, and it gets uh, it takes a, a dramatic twist. It's so long though. You know, I'm a millennial. Like <laughs> uh, fifteen minutes is a long time. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, resist the temptation to Google his name, but right. uh, but just hang in there with us. So. Okay, let's see. Uh, where do we, where do we want to go here with this? Because this guy has so many achievements. Mm-hmm. He started out in, uh, in drag racing. Right. And I believe he was, uh, he was notably known to be the first manager of a place called the Lions Drag Strip near Long Beach, California. And this was in 1955. Mm-hmm. Again, that was right at the birth of, of drag racing. And he, even then, he was making some incredible changes to things because prior to that, he had been at the track, not just managing the track or not operating the track, but he had been at the track drag racing and um, he made a, a significant change to, you know, those long dragsters, the ones that, um, you know, we call them, I guess, rail dragsters, right. top yeah. dragsters now. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, you know, way back in the 1950s, early 1950s, uh, they looked significantly different. Yes. And he made a dramatic change to these because you got to remember tire technology back then wasn't what it is now. And the tires were a lot, uh, they had a, um, a harder compound. They weren't quite as soft as they are now. Mm-hmm. They weren't quite as grippy as they were now. So he made this change to the, the dragster. He, he created what they called the first slingshot dragster. Right. The slingshot dragster in 1954. Uh, we've got some, you can go to Thompson Motorsports. Uh, they've got a website where you can read some of the history. And in his own words, uh, we have a, 
we have a quote from him here. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, he said it was late 1954 that I decided to build a radically new type of dragster. For years, everybody in the sport had been making noises about traction, weight transfer, and about getting as much of the weight of the vehicle as possible concentrated on its rear driving area. And, you know, he also he goes on to note that part of the problem is that as everyone in the sport is uh, getting more and more horsepower, they need to have more and more traction to enable it. Because after a certain point, it doesn't really matter how strong the engine is if the tires can't translate that to the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a big change. Yeah, this is a big change. And so he says the big obstacle was keeping the driver between the engine and the rear axle. So he needed a drive shaft of a certain length that pushed the engine forward by that amount. And he said, if you put the driver behind the rear axle, you can couple the engine transmission assembly directly to it, and you'd have most of the weight focused uh, on the driving wheels. Slingshot dragster. That's what it's called. And if you want to look up the design, you can look up that and and find out what it looks like. But um, they said that, you know, another change uh, or change that significant wouldn't happen again until Don Garlitz designed the rear engine dragster. Yes. And that's the design that we see now. But I think that was after Don Garlitz famously lost half his foot at a racetrack uh, because the uh, the chassis just snapped right in half. Mm -hmm. It's It's a dramatic moment that's caught. On, uh, I believe, I think there's a still of the exact moment that this thing was coming apart. That's crazy. Uh, terrifying moment, but, um, anyways, Don Garlitz changed it as well. But, um, you know, uh, Mickey Thompson, what he contributed, you know, with the slingshot dragster, there's more to the drag racing story as well. He continued to innovate over the decades. So we'll talk about that as we get to it because it's later in the timeline here. But, um, you know, right around this time, around, you know, the late 1950s, um, he decided that, you know, I've, I've done the drag, the drag racing thing. I'm going to move on to uh, to some of these land speed records that I've heard about because I, I like going fast. Right. And uh, he's a young guy. He's got, uh, you know, I wouldn't say nothing to lose or anything like that. But, you know, you know how when you're younger, you've got a little bit more, uh, was it hubris? Is that what you call that, I guess? Yeah, um, perhaps hubris. Yeah, that's a clean way to say it, right? Yeah, that's a that's a clean way to say it. I, I think so. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he thought, well, I can I can go out there and attempt some of these land speed records. And, right. and he works at building his own streamliner cars. Mm-hmm. And the one that he came up with was called the Challenger. Yes, the Challenger, which uh, when it first came out was just known as the Challenger. Uh, and this was a vehicle entirely dedicated to breaking the piston-driven world land speed record. Long-time listeners, you know, anytime we're talking about a world record, there have to be some qualifiers. Yeah, and and just real quick, what you were talking about there, you know, when known as the Challenger, yeah. it wasn't until the Challenger 2, which we'll talk about in a little bit, came out, came yeah, out and then they, right? they went back and renamed the Challenger the Challenger 1. It's just yeah. one of those things. You have to retroactively name it. Yes. Uh, he, he came close to breaking that speed record in 1960 with the Challenger 1, but he had a breakdown on the return pass. Yeah, you're right. All this has to be uh, kind of uh, clarified with asterisks and, and sure. qualify, qualifiers. You know, that uh, this is going to be the first American to go this fast, or this is going to be the first pistoned engine to go this yep, fast, or yep. wheels driven by the piston engine, etc. So I went to a site called This Day in History, and I uh, looked back to September, actually September 20th of 1960, where they mentioned the two different runs he made, because... He was unsuccessful in the first attempt, as you mentioned, and the first attempt was was attempted on September 9th of that year of 1960. Mm-hmm. And here's kind of the way this was uh, was laid out, the way it, the way it happened. Now, 
Again, he's trying to attempt to become the first American to travel faster than 400 miles per hour on land. So, and he actually, he achieved that. Yes, but, he did. But, but he didn't get the whole record. The qualifier there, that American to go faster, I, that, that comes up in just a little while. We'll tell you about that guy in mm-hmm. just a moment. But, um, he did, he did do that. And I'll tell you why it didn't qualify in just a moment. But, um, okay. So the, the current land speed record at the time was 394 miles per hour. And that was set at Bonneville in 1947 again by a uh, Brit. His name was John Cobb. Yes. And on John's first run across the flats, he went at something like 403.135 miles an hour. And then on the way back, it was something like uh, 388 miles an hour. And then they averaged the two runs. Right. And that's yeah. how you make it. And there's there's a strict set of rules that you have to adhere to what has to be done between the uh, between the runs in a certain amount of time in order for it to qualify. And Mickey didn't make that on the first run. So on the September 9th attempt, here's what happens. Now, for a long time... Uh, he told people, you know, he, well, of course, he, he went out and attempted the first run. He, he actually um, ran the car at something like uh, 406.6 miles per hour on the first run, which is astounding. That's pretty amazing for this car on, on, on uh, you know, first or second or third time out or whatever it was. It was just, you know, really, really new at the time. Um, so he did achieve that, you know, faster than 400 mile per hour uh, rate, I guess. Sure. However, on his return attempt, uh, he broke down, and, he, and for years he had said that something uh, in the driveline snapped, something that forced him to stop accelerating. Uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting. That's one interesting possibility because we know uh, that some people are skeptical about that claim. Yeah, and you know, for him to say this, and, and it turns out that it was kind of a PR move on his point, his part rather, to say that you know something in the driveline snapped. And here's the way it was it was you know pointed out. It said, uh, you know. What really happened was that one of the car's four supercharged engines, and you're hearing that right, that had four, four supercharged Pontiac engines. Take a look at it if you haven't seen it before. Oh, yeah, it's an amazing vehicle. And uh, one of those one of those engines actually blew when he shifted into high gear. And as he puts it, he says, you know, when you, or someone on his team, I guess, puts it, because he never really uh, ever said it. An anonymous expert on the Challenger <laughs> 1 said. Yeah, he said, he said when you're, when you're sponsored by an engine company and you blow an engine, uh, you know, you're not expected to say that the engine blew. What you're expected to say is that something, you know, in the driveline broke. You don't say my Pontiac supercharged engine blew when it, when that's your sponsor. Right. So you say, ah, something went wrong and we had to shut it down. And that's about it. That's about as, as far as you go with it. And you just have to kind of let it stand there. Ah, but you don't let that record stand because on September 20th of the same year, Thompson's back at it. Yeah, he goes back for another round and uh, thinks that he's going to... uh you know, get this thing up to the 406 that he had in the previous run, but it just uh, just wasn't working out that day. I don't know what was going on with the car, but uh, the first run was something like 378 miles per hour, and the second run was like 368 miles per hour. And as they said, it, it hardly mattered at all because um, you know by the um, you know he had already traveled. He'd been the first American, I guess, to travel at the 406 miles per hour. He didn't hold the land speed record, right? And not only that, but you know, by the time he retired, and this is, uh, get this, he retired in 1962, so this is only like two years after this attempt, he held something like 100 land speed records. 100! 100! <laughs> that yes. means he's practically living on the salt flats for this amount of time. So this guy is out there driving, running everything out there, uh, just so he can, he can set record after record after record on different vehicles, different setups, different configurations. Right. Um, so he was a, a significant player in the land speed record um, arena in the early 1960s. 
Yeah, absolutely. But of course, his career doesn't stop in the 60s by any means. Before we go to uh, the a little bit further in the timeline, however, uh, let's let's see what's going on with John Cobb. Because off the air, Scott, you told me you had a you had dug up something that I didn't know. So I'm going to be as surprised as you are, listeners. I did. So we said that uh, you know the current land speed record at the time was uh, was held by John Cobb, and he was a bred again, 394 miles per hour. This guy, I thought, well, I'll look into what John Cobb was up to at the time, sure. because well, why not? You know, these guys tend to break multiple records when they do, and I thought, mm-hmm. you know, he might be involved in other things. Sure enough, he was. This guy was, uh, was, um, he was, uh, killed in 1952. So this is eight years prior to Mickey attempting to set his record. Um, in 1952, he was killed, and this is where the story is kind of, takes a, a strange twist, Ben. Yeah. He died on Loch Ness while attempting to set the, the water speed record. And he crashed going 200 miles per hour. And this is again, 1952 in a jet, uh, in a jet speedboat called the Crusader. And this sounds a lot like, remember Donald Campbell who died on Coniston Water? Yeah. Uh, the, the problem was the water was too choppy on the return, uh, the return and route. He was trying to set a, uh, he was trying to set a boat speed record. Correct. And this, this guy also was trying to set a boat speed record, or water speed water record. Water speed, yeah. On Loch Ness. Yeah. And they said that he hit an unexpected wake on the return trip. Now. Or a di- or, or a dinosaur. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know what? I know you're kidding, but that was what I was getting to. What? People have attributed. Now, this is this is uh, kind oh, of on the uh, on the fringe, right? Baloney. They have said that they attribute that wake, that unexpected wake, to Nessie. That they is- say that it's the Loch Ness monster that created a wake that caused this guy. But but you know what? And I, I don't care if you're a believer or not. But, All right. But this ties the two together. The tie the, forever in history. There's always going to be the mention that hey, there was an unexpected wake, and they said that it was caused by a large animal just underneath the surface that caused this wake, that caused this boat to flip at 200 miles an hour. Now, you don't think that due to the shape of the of Loch Ness that he was simply hitting his own wake returning. You know, it's just yeah, that's the way it works. I think that there are some more mundane explanations, and I, I, I hate to be that guy, but um, the... It's a fascinating story. Uh, look, all I'm saying is it, it's tied together in history forever now because it, there were immediate reports that, oh, you know what? You know what happened? It was, you know, this large monster just under the surface caused that wake because that wake had no purpose being there. There was no there's no reason for that, um, that unexplained wave. That yeah. There. But there is an explanation. It's that he was on the lake going 200 miles an hour and, you know, <laughs> and hitting his own way and hitting his own way. Yes, that's right. I, I don't I don't know. It's just I, th- I found it fascinating that the two were tied together. And, yeah, and that's crazy. I, I don't know, it was kind of a, a strange twist to the whole thing. And whoever would have thought that looking up, you know, land speed record stuff, you're going to tie in the Loch Ness monster. Yeah, no, I didn't. I did not see that one coming. You, yeah. you got me. Well, on actually, that one. you did see it. You, uh, you, you pegged it right there at the end. Oh well, you know, it's the other show I do. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it had to be something. Like yeah, that. I just, uh, yeah, and sorry that I loudly proclaimed baloney as soon as I saw where you were going. <laughs> no, with no, it. I, I feel the same <laughs> way. However, you know, got a report. Uh, but uh, now we can move on to uh, some of his other career moves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he he has uh, so many records, but. He also has a lot of uh, instances wherein he he failed to get a record. Uh, you know what? For every every time you hear him, um, you hear about a Mickey Thompson 
land speed record or uh, a performance in Indy 500 that's pretty successful, then what you have to understand is that there are other there are many other times where he like didn't qualify very well, like sure. like in um, like we we haven't even really gone into his uh, Indy 500 stuff yet. No, and honestly, his uh, his Indy years were. Dotted with success, but uh, overall failure, I guess. And and I hate to say that it was a failure, but he never he never really accomplished what he did in drag racing uh, right. in IndyCar or other series, as we'll get to. Uh, he just or, or land speed records, of course. But um, he made six attempts at Indianapolis, and that was between the years of 1962 and 1968. And uh, that's only six attempts because he skipped the 1966 race because right. things weren't going so well for him at that point. Um, we can kind of step through the years if you'd like. I mean, there's some there's some highlights I'd like to hit on his indie years. Yeah, let's, um, let's do the, let's do the highlights. I, I believe as we read through here, I believe his best placing in indie with his drivers was uh, was something like twentieth place uh, with uh, with driver Dan Gurney behind the wheel in 1962. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, now that I'm talking about this, Dan Gurney. I mean, that's an incredible racer. Um, he had several other people that he worked with uh, over the years, as you can imagine, that were uh, just top of their game racers and so he had an enormous pool of talent to draw right, from yeah you know that, that uh, was working with him Dwayne Carter Eddie Johnson and these guys knew about Mickey and wanted to be involved with Mickey as well it wasn't just one way it wasn't just you know he's writing a check to me so I'm going to drive for him they wanted to work with Mickey Thompson because here's this guy that owns 100 plus land speed records he's yeah. a he's a known accomplished builder creator fabricator that's the kind of guy you want in your pits at Indianapolis, and that's exactly what they they got because these cars that we're talking about that he he, he designed some of these cars, he, right. he innovated a lot of things on these vehicles, as we'll talk about. You know, that's many, the word. Many many innovations, mm-hmm. and um, you know some of them were, of course, outlawed the next year and then had to be changed. Right, it, sort of like Smokey Eunuch, only uh-huh. only different. He was just trying to better improve traction or things like that. Um, he wasn't putting basketballs in gas tanks. Yeah, he wasn't quite to the level of like a smoky <laughs> unit or something like that that I know of. But, um, you know, he did things like in 1962, he used stock Buick V8 engines instead of going with, you know, the purpose built Offenhauser cars right, that, yeah. that most of the competitors used. Um, it was, in fact, it was the first, in 1962, he was the first, uh, team owner to use stock engines to be, you know, to race at Indianapolis since 1946. So there was a long yeah. drought of people not doing that. In fact, going with, you know, purpose-built race engines. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, you know, worked on this car, these cars that they brought, I guess, because they brought three cars that year, I think. And they were all rear-engined vehicle, uh, vehicles, rather. And um, uh, it's not, you know, it wasn't that, you know, they had never seen a rear-engined vehicle right. in Indianapolis. It's just it, it wasn't the first. It was just kind of an unusual design to see even at that time. So they worked on these cars for, you know, like four months. Uh, you weren't working 12 to 14 hour days constantly in order to get them ready for the race. And, um, they used what was called the, you know, the stock block, um, regulations. The, the, the regulations right. called for stock block, but you could, um, you could, you know, enlarge that to a bigger capacity. And I think 4.2 liters was the maximum that was allowed at that time. And again, they had driver Dan Gurney, um, at, at the wheel. So they've got a lot of talent there. Um, yeah. And in fact, Ben, they had to detune these engines just so they would make the 500-mile distance. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. 
start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Which uh, gave them a, what would seem a definite disadvantage because they were about uh, 70 BHP down in comparison to the other cars. Uh, even despite that, uh, Gurney qualified eighth, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in ninth place, but then a malfunction struck. Yeah, somewhere around uh, lap 94, so roughly midway point in the race. And... Uh, he was placed something like 20th out of the 33 cars that started the race. So, again, that 20th position, I believe, is his best placing ever in Indianapolis as a team owner. I think the gearbox seized or something? Yeah, something like that. It wasn't uh, it wasn't anything to do with the engine or anything like that. It was a, it was a different part. Uh, however, the team did win the Mechanical Achievement Award for right. original design, construction, and accomplishment that year. So I think that's kind of cool. And I think... There were other times when they won similar awards, you know, even though they didn't necessarily place in the podium or anything. Right. He was also uh, he was also impressive to people for his uh, his manner, his uh, his trackside manner. Yeah. Uh, so the PR folks loved him. The sponsors of the races loved him. And this starts to send him on. Later, this will start to send him in a more entrepreneurial direction. Sure. Starting the very next year. As right. a matter of fact, because. You know, with the with the skills for for adapting and changing things at the track, you know, on the fly, um, especially his interest in he he must have had some kind of deep interest in tires and tire technology oh, yeah. and traction. Oh man! And, and of course, as a dragster, you would think that he would have that. But in 1963, even while he was at Indianapolis, he, he came out with a, a couple of cars. He had five cars that were entered. Five cars in 1963. That's a lot. He had two stock cars. You know, the stock block cars, like we talked about right, right. the previous year. 
And three, what they called uh, roller skate cars. Yeah, Harvey Aluminum Specials. Yeah, the Harvey Aluminum Specials. Now, these are cool-looking vehicles. You can find photos of the Harvey, Harvey Aluminum Special Indy 500 car online. And, uh, you know, the Harvey representative there with, you know, um, with uh, Mickey Thompson sitting, in, you know, behind the wheel. And... Um, Oh, and uh, one of those, and not to interrupt, but one of, one of those was actually a titanium special. They're named after the chassis. Yeah, so they're all a little bit different in the way that they're all set up. And, and how cool, I mean, to be running a titanium chassis, you know, the 1963 Indy 500. Now, I know that uh, titanium was used in racing earlier sure, too, yeah. but... Uh, so it's a relatively new innovation at the time oh, for Indy, anyways. And people were complaining, you know, people uh, can look askance at new stuff because these these vehicles are visibly different mm-hmm. at, in this race at, at this time in Indy, and they have uh, lower weight. They've got smaller tires, right? Ah, that's important. Smaller tires. Now, I'm glad you said the tire thing because they have a, a smaller profile, 12 inch diameter wheel. Yeah, uh, our tire and wheel. Uh, the front, the front was seven inches and the rear was nine inches wide at the wheels. So, yeah. uh, a different setup of front and back. The backs are wider. And, um, it was at this time, it was in 1963. And I don't even know if there's a note here about this or not, but I think 1963 was when he launched his line of, uh, performance tires. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mickey Thompson tires. You got it. In 1963, he and a friend named Gene McManus started the company, uh, and it was, let's see, I think the entire name was something like Mickey Thompson Performance Tires and Wheels. So uh, it takes a while to say. People just started calling them Mickey Thompson Tires. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, Ben, that I want to mention here is that this this car was so different from everything out there at the time that they actually toured England with this vehicle to kind of uh, kind of demo this vehicle to, to racers across the pond. You know? Oh, yeah, the Brighton Speed Trials, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brighton <clears throat> Speed Trials. And then it was later displayed at the racing car show in London in January of 1964. And, um, you know, big success. People like the design, sure. and it's stuck. Oh, yeah, this is a great year for him. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to talk about these tires for a little while. Sure. I, I, don't, uh, I don't have guys, don't worry. I don't work for Mickey Thompson Tires. Uh, however, the kind of tire they were making uh, was something new for most drivers and most racers. Uh, an open wheel racing tire. It had a. It was made with a softer compound and it had a lower profile. So, in theory and usually in practice, this is a lower center of gravity, greater stability. And they came out, you know, with the twelve inch tire. Then they came out with a fifteen inch tire in '64. Uh, this was also the first company to offer. 50, 60, and 70 series Indy profile tires. Ah, see, now the reason they changed was because in 1964 he had three cars entered in the race again, and in Indy again. And, you know, they brought these cars with, uh, you know, the th- three cars with 12 inch tires. Yeah. And ready to race. And they said, oh, sorry, there's been a rule change. You've got to go up to 15 inch tires. And, and, th- and that's when he developed his And own. you know why that was, right? Why is it, that? It's because the, it's because some of the, uh, the older crowd, the more established owners and, uh, Maybe even drivers in the races mm-hmm. uh, didn't like what he had been doing with the specials. So, out of the three cars that they entered that year in 1964, two uh-huh. of them qualified for the race, and there was a number 84 car, and that was yeah. with driver Eddie Johnson, who was a substitute driver, but he qualified 24th and finished 26th in the race. Right, and then there was the other qualifying car, which this is uh, an unfortunate thing. It was driven by a rookie driver named Dave McDonald. That was car eighty-three. Uh, it was it qualified fourteenth, so he was he was uh, 
doing better than uh, 84. However, uh, this car had a fiery crash. Yeah, first lap. Killed First the driver, lap. Killed the driver. And so David McDonald died. Yeah, Dave did, McDonald. Dave McDonald did not survive that uh, that first lap crash. And uh, this is bad news for the team, of course, bad news for the race. You know, no one wants to see this happen ever right. in racing. But um, kind of set a, uh, a downslide for uh, Mickey Thompson's career at at Indianapolis. Not, not overall, but just at Indianapolis. Because right. from this point on, you know, he went back in 1965 but failed to qualify. Um, in an attempt with with front with a front engine road, road right. this time, not the not the rear engine, and then he skipped sixty six. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, and then he went back in again in nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight, but he failed to qualify either one of those years as well. Now I do want to mention the nineteen sixty seven year because something significant happened there. It's another innovation that I think we should talk about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't all him, I don't believe, but no. uh, this is this is the year that he tried to qualify an all wheel drive all-wheel steering car in the 1967 Indianapolis 500. Now, how cool is that? I mean, I mean, of course, there was a, um, uh, a driver, his name is, the driver's name was Gary Congdon, mm-hmm. uh, but he was unable to qualify any of the three cars yeah, uh, they that he brought, brought three cars. So, you know, from 1967. But how cool is that? And way back then, yeah. to be trying an all-wheel drive, all-wheel steering vehicle at a, at a huge race like the Indy 500. And, uh, you mentioned his book earlier, so yeah. we should talk about one of uh, the book he published in '65. Because this guy's also a very good businessman. Crazy in the middle of all this indie stuff. Yeah, Challenger, Mickey Thompson's own story of his life of speed. Uh, Challenger taken from the name of his land right, speed racer, right. of course. Yeah, and uh, it, he didn't call it Challenger One or Challenger Two. No, just right. Challenger. Just Challenger. And you know what? He's probably, if I had to guess, he was already probably working on that car from nineteen for nineteen sixty eight. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the Challenger 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that was part of it. Yeah. Uh, he also redesigned the funny car. Uh, he went on yeah. to... Wait, let's not gloss over uh... this. He redesigned <laughs> yeah. the funny car. Yes. So, and I, I don't... You know, I've got to dig into what he did exactly to that because, I mean, here he is. He's innovating again at the racetrack. He's back into drag racing. So this guy has jumped from uh, hot rodding to drag racing to land speed records to IndyCar back yeah. to drag racing at this yeah. point, and he's not done yet. No, he's not done yet. Uh he wins, uh, let's see, what, what well, else is he going Well, he's still drag racing. And he's he camp- still drag racing. He campaigned racing. a car, I believe, in 1971, a funny car, correct? Yes, yes. And is that the one that had uh, Danny Ungaius? I yes, believe it, it was. Is. Okay, so yeah. Danny Ungaius, a.k.a. the Flying Hawaiian. Uh, <laughs> Danny Ungaius, I've seen him racing at Indy uh, back when I was there. He was still racing. In no the late, way. Late 70s, early 80s, he was kid, still around. Right? Yeah, because uh, Ungaius raced in... Um, Oh God, he did everything. He was an Indy 500 driver. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a motorcycle racer, a sports car racer. He raced an F1 for a while. Um, he did drag racing, of course, and he even had uh, a couple of championships in two different series in 1963 and 64. I'm sorry, he had three championships: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 63, 64, and 65. And one was in the American Hot Rod Association, and the other one was in the National Hot Rod Association. And those were both, um, I believe, the the double A level. Uh, but again, championships. So Danny Ungaius did a lot more than people knew about, I think, at that time. You hear his name, uh, you know, synonymous with F1 and, and IndyCar a lot, but you don't realize that he was also a great drag racer. You know, if you have, didn't happen to be around that or interested in that sport at the time, yeah. you wouldn't really know that. Yeah, and <clears throat> this also, uh, this ties back in with uh, the Renaissance era stuff that Mickey Thompson was doing himself because he was also uh, getting into off-road vehicles, which I think we should talk about. Oh, this is huge for yeah. him. Okay, so this is kind of his 
his last thing that he gets involved with. You know, we mentioned Drag Race in India and all that stuff in the right. speed records. Uh, this is kind of the, the final chapter in, in his motorsports career. And it's off-road racing. And because he had done things like, you know, the Baja 1000 and Baja right. 500 races. Yeah, yeah. And he had mentioned that, you know, a lot of times we're out in the desert and no one really sees us racing. We don't get any kind of, you know, not credit, but no <laughs> one gets to, no one gets to enjoy what we do because it's really a fascinating right. sport. Right. I think he said, what was it? Something, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but he said the only things that see us out there are jackrabbits and tumbleweeds or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah, similar to that. But yeah. he said, you know what we need is we need a sanctioning body, something that can make this official, something that can get some crowd, you know, attention behind it, some sponsorship, mm-hmm. some real money, and maybe we can even get some television production out of this. Uh, people will really like this if they can just see it because no one knows about it except the guys that are on the inside right now. So he founded. Score International, which stands for Southern California Off-Road Experience. Yeah, and I know we've talked about Score on this program Right, because we talked about the Baja. Yes, exactly. So this was founded in 1973 by Mickey Thompson. Yeah. And, uh, again, it was to oversee all types of off-road racing across North America. And then at the same time, or well, actually, you know what, about six years later, I should say, mm-hmm. he founded um, another, another um, sanctioning body along with his wife. His wife's name was Trudy. Right. And uh, Trudy and Mickey founded the Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group, or MTEG. And this was a little different because this ran indoor motocross and off-road vehicle racing events. And uh, I know I've seen the Mickey Thompson series run, like, at the Coliseum in Los Angeles, you know, yeah. on television. Because for a while, some of those events were uh, were taking place on uh, television stations like, you know, TNN and ESPN were, were broadcasting those. Um, that's, you know, that, that series... Um, it went away around 1996, I think. The uh, the MTEG group went bankrupt in 1996. But, um, uh, and again, we're skipping over a time sure. period here that we're going to come back to. But right. in 1996, uh, that group went bankrupt. And then later the concept was revived by driver Robbie Gordon um, in 2013. So that series is still around, uh, but it had a period of time where it just didn't exist between 96 and 2013. And can we hop back just for a second because there's a interesting little anecdote I want to I want to tell you about uh, his wife because I think this is the first time we mentioned his wife Trudy. Yeah, sure. So he met her. Uh, he he met her in a strange way. Did you hear about this? No, I did not. So he was a street racing guy and he's younger, right? Of course. And uh, he was racing a woman who beat him in. The, who beat him in the race and uh, flew over to talk with her. And the way they say it is before they knew it, they were married. So what a way to meet, what a way to meet your spouse. So huh? she, so Trudy beat Mickey Thompson at a street race. Apparently. And that's how they met. Apparently. That's the story. It's a good story. That's a good story. For a guy uh, like this, for, for anybody, really. I mean, that might have been the only thing that would have convinced them, right? <laughs> probably. You're probably right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I just say that because I, uh, I wanted to mention that while we, uh, we're mentioning his wife, Trudy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's uh, something else important that you said we need to get back to. Yes, there is. And, and I know that, you know, I don't know if we want to end on this, Ben, or not, but um, there's, a, there's a, a significant part of the story here that we want to get to. There's a lot of other things around here. We haven't really described the Challenger car. We haven't described Challenger 2. We haven't talked about his son's pursuit um, of the of the speed record, the land speed record, right. in, in, with the Challenger 2 that he's, he pulled it out of the museum and he rebuilt it and he wants to he wants to run it but there's been rain at the Bonneville Salt Flats for the last 2 years. Yes. 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. both events were canceled 
otherwise he would have done this. I mean, there's a there's a current record holder for that, and it's it's higher than you would think. It's um, I think it's 439 and a half miles an hour is the current record. I held out of uh, held from a guy named George Potite out of Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. right now. The, mm-hmm. the car is called the Speed Demon. Go Memphis! And uh, <laughs> that's nice, Ben. That's true. I'm from oh. Tennessee. I'm sorry. Right. Well, you know what? I'm I'm okay with that. All right. Uh, so yes, we have, we have all this stuff. You know what, Scott, maybe we explore some of that after, after this, cause I agree with you. I don't want to end on the note that we're about to hit. All right. Um, Noel, could we get, uh, some true crime music? You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Very, very fitting. Yeah, very fitting. Uh, so, Mickey Thompson and his wife Trudy both passed away on March 16, 1988, when two hooded gunmen uh, entered their home in California. Yeah, this becomes a true crime story, Ben, because there is a there's an unsolved murder that happens here, a double murder uh, that lasts. It's a cold case for 13 years, and here's here's the way this all went down. Uh, we'll get to some of the newer details in just a moment, but. This is again 1988, and they're out in their driveway. So here's what here's what happens, and this is the account that I've read. 
Um, on the morning of the murder, the pair, a pair of unknown assailants waited outside the Thompson home for the couple to, to leave for the day. Mickey opened the garage door for his wife to pull out, uh, pull her vehicle out of the garage. And as he headed for his own vehicle or his own car, a gunman attacked him and he was shot and wounded and then dragged out into the driveway while one of the other attackers went after Trudy as she was backing out of the garage. Mm-hmm. Now the other gunman shot and killed her in her car. And then the gunman came back up the driveway where the other gunman was watching over Mickey, and then he shot him in the head. So double murder, Mm. early morning thing. Um, The attackers made their escape on bicycles that they had ridden to the Thompson residence. And this isn't the end of the story by any means. No, not at all. um, This case, you know, of course, it was huge news in 1988. It was a big deal. Police searched everywhere with no leads, apparently. For yeah. years. Yeah, for years. And we said 13 years. It, um, it remained a cold case until 2001. Yeah, that's when a gentleman named Mike Goodwin was formally charged with the murders in Orange County, California. Yeah. Now, I'm going to see if I can piece this all together for okay, you. Because here's, here's it, what happened. A lot of stuff happens. Now, this is a, a former Thompson business partner. His name is, again, Michael Frank Goodwin. And he was charged in Orange County, California with the murders. And... Here's how it goes. Um, there's a, um, a mention of this in the November 2001 uh, Car and Driver magazine, or at least the online publication in 2001, where it said um, in August, I think it was around August 12th, um, in a strange move, Los Angeles County Sheriff deputies arrested the principal figure long suspected in the involvement of the 1988 murders of auto racing legend Mickey Thompson and his wife Trudy. Um, they put this guy into a police lineup and then released him without filing any charges on that right. day. So this is August of 2001. Yeah. Um, all right, so this is the guy that was involved in kind of a, a bad business deal with uh, with Mickey Thompson during right. the time. Now, I think that they had been involved with, um, uh, you know, sponsoring these stadium motorsports events and, you know, the sponsorship of these events, Supercross events, and, you know, promoting them. And um, th- there was a deal between Thompson and Goodwin that had kind of soured at some point. And there was a, uh, a court case, a long drawn out court case. And in the end, uh, Goodwin had to file for bankruptcy because Thompson ended up winning a judgment against him for something like $531,000, which I've seen a number that goes up to about $700,000. Now mm-hmm. that's again, the 1980s, mid 1980s when this happened. And, um, the reason that he would have been brought in for this lineup, because you would think, well, he's not the trigger man. It was two, uh, as they described it, it as two black males that ran away right. uh, on these bicycles and you know escaped the scene. No one ever saw them again. But um, they said that the police who had you know kind of pursued this case over the years had been trying to get Goodwin in the lineup since uh, you know the, the previous March because new witnesses came forth uh, that had lived in the neighborhood. A couple a couple that they described as living near the Thompsons mm-hmm. reportedly told the police that they'd seen a man that same morning in the neighborhood parked in a 1973 Chevy Malibu station wagon looking through binoculars. Now, that goes against what Goodwin had said he was doing that right. day because he had an, al- an alibi. Yeah, yeah, but he also owned a Malibu. Well, his, yeah, exactly. But his alibi was that he was, um, I think he said he was like 45 miles south of the location of the murder. Uh, he was, uh, let's see, it would have been like 5.55 in the morning on March 16th. He said that he was touring a health club that he just joined in Irvine, California, instead of being up where uh, the Thompson murder happened. So 
the the couple came in for this lineup, you know, this uh, this lineup where they didn't charge him with anything. Right. But they identified him as being the man that was in that car with the binoculars. With the binoculars so many years prior to that. Now one other thing I need to mention here is that the sheriff's department issued two special bulletins on the same day as the arrest. One showed sketches of the descriptions of the two black men who were, you know, described as the actual killers, the trigger men. Sure. And the other was uh, seeking information on a faded green or blue 1973 Malibu station wagon with Arizona plates. Well, the, <laughs> there, here's the thing as well. They accused him ultimately of being the one who planned the escape route for these people. Yeah, and being the one who ordered the hit. Right, and uh, they also there there were reports, of course, that he had verbally threatened uh, the Thompson family over the phone. Uh, going so far to say, and I quote, I'm going to kill you and your wife. Wow. Now, that's, so, uh, that's a pretty significant piece of uh, information there. Now, right. uh, he, this guy has gone through financial ruin. He had been close with the family. Sure. Um, I can see there's, you know, some bad blood there. I understand, you know, the uh, the angst, I guess. But to threaten the family with killing them and, and to actually then carry out this uh, this 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 act, uh, it's unbelievable. And I, I, it's hard to, to wrap your head around this because these guys worked Closely together. But I know business associates, one thing, you know, it's not like a close, close family friend. And Goodwin was very successful before this partnership, so maybe he blamed it on there. And, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've got to say one thing that to me is just a clear indication of how, how very guilty this guy is. Okay. Uh, you heard the story about what he did, right, after they let him go. What did he, he do? He liquidated his assets around the time of the killings. Yeah. Uh, bought a yacht and sailed off to the Caribbean. Oh boy. You know, I had heard that. I heard that he had tried to, um, he tried to flee overseas, I think was the way that Right. I That's had... why he was arrested in 2001 because he came back to the States. Oh, okay. So it wasn't until 2001 that they were able to get their hands on this guy. I believe so. So yeah. maybe that's the reason. I mean, they probably just pursued him around the earth, you know, just, just kind of monitored where he was until he came back and yeah. uh, made the big mistake, I guess. So there's always, Always that one critical mistake that the criminals like this make, isn't there, Ben? Yeah, they're well, at least the ones who get caught. Yes. Uh there is one thing that I want to quote his uh his defense attorney, and this is from October twenty fourteen, uh back when he was first filing an appeal. Mm -hmm. Defense attorney Gail Harper said there was insufficient evidence at Goodwin's trial to tie him to the killings in nineteen nineteen eighty eight in suburban Los Angeles. Mr. Goodwin is an angry man. And he's kind of a jerk, she said. But being a jerk is not a crime. Oh, boy. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> because, sound too good when your lawyer is saying that, right? Your defense attorney. She also told the justices, you have to overcome distaste for Mr. Goodwin, who is thoroughly distasteful. Oh, boy. So, so it doesn't sound like he's her favorite person. He's uh, not the nicest guy yeah. in the room. That's for sure. Right. All right. So the, in this case, I mean, uh, this goes all the way up until January of this very year, 2015, where right. uh, they tried to appeal the case, you know, tried to get it uh, you know, back into court, and they denied the appeal because he is serving uh, two consecutive life sentences for these murders. At this no point. parole. Yeah, no yeah. chance for parole. So he's behind bars right now. However, I mean, the gunmen, the actual people that, that committed this murder, are still out there. They're still out there somewhere. Now, I don't know why they haven't been able to piece together you know, they've got him, so, you know, what's his incentive for, for not, you know, ratting out these two guys and hopefully getting a, l a lesser sentence on the back end for well, himself? the rumor was that he had brought them 
somehow from the Caribbean, but that's unsubstantiated. Mm-hmm. So there's a chance he doesn't really know who these guys are. It's an easy chance. Or that they have, you know, passed on or that they're, you know, just elsewhere in the world. Hiring a hit person? Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's not it, like you meet their parents, man. Okay. So anyways, that's a, that's a terrible bit of news. I mean, yeah. to end this, this great story, because he really did have a, a great life story. Um, to end it all with the, with the murder of he and his wife and you know the, the cold blooded murder in their driveway. That's uh, I don't think we should do that. So let's. Well, yeah, the legacy continues. You know, definitely with his uh, with his son, right, mm-hmm. Danny Thompson. Yes. Now Danny Thompson is attempting to use the Challenger Two, which heartbreakingly, Ben, he and his dad were going to run the the Challenger Two uh, sometime in the late 1980s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had paired together. Now this is his dad had retired from racing in 1988. And they were, they had kind of partnered together. Uh, so the very year of his murder, he was, he had partnered with his son, Danny, and they were going to make this attempt to, uh, run the Challenger 2 out on the salt flats to achieve that record. He was gonna, he was gonna break the record himself and kind of carry on in his dad's name. And of course, you know, the, the murder completely shut that down and the car just went into a museum somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the car sat there for something like four decades, for like, uh, for 40 years. Cause I mean, the car was built in 1968. Um, didn't, uh, didn't ever go out there because I think the first attempt was foiled by rain, which oddly enough, I mean, that's so strange, isn't it? 1968, uh, Mickey Thompson was rained out at the salt flats mm-hmm. from, from attempting his run in the Challenger 2 and never got back to it again. Then in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2014, I believe, that was the first year that, he, uh, Danny was going to attempt, uh, to, you know, bring the resurrected Challenger 2 back out to the salt flats to, to, break this record you know the uh the rebuilt car i guess mm-hmm. but his dad's car the one they worked on together yeah. and uh he was also rained out and then again this year in 2015 rained out again if that's not a sign ben that's uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to tell you <laughs> i mean it could be a coincidence it could be i mean but come on i mean decades apart four decades apart as i said uh well you know it's still worth trying yeah i guess so i mean in a rain out is not all that uncommon i suppose no. because you know that area obviously it was meant to hold water at some point and when it <laughs> rains and it does rain it does rain a lot out there yeah and it's always uh you know kind of a touch and go if it's going to dry out enough for them mm-hmm. to run and some years it does some years it doesn't and there's just no way to do it when it's too soft out there or if there's standing water right the conditions have to be Perfect. Yeah. So look for Danny to uh, to continue this pursuit. I would guess in 2016. I mean, he's getting up there in years too. I don't know exactly how old he is right now, but mm-hmm. um, he's not a young guy anymore. Uh, it no. doesn't mean that he can't do it. I mean, that's that's not saying that at all. I'm just saying he better do it soon. That's what I mean. And I'm not saying that he's not capable or anything like that, or you know that there's an age where you have to stop doing this. I'm just saying, you know, it's time for this to happen because you know after so many years, you know, pretty soon he's going to have to rebuild the car again in order to take it out. I mean, it's just going to yeah. work out that way. So we wish him the best of luck because, you know, I I personally think that there, there are very few things as cool as having a world record of some sort. Uh, and this, this is totally a tangent. This is a, just a very brief tangent. Sure. And I, I apologize, but it's interesting to me. Perhaps it'll be interesting to you guys. So I have one of those random thoughts that occurs to me. Right. And, uh, I was walking into work a few weeks ago and I don't know why, Scott, but it hit me. There's someone in the world who is the world's worst astronaut. Just statistically, someone is the worst astronaut. How would you measure the world's worst astronaut? I don't know, but I bet everybody at NASA knows who it is. Yeah. They're like, uh, 
Derek, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And I was thinking about that. Would, would it be so bad? Because you still have a kind of uh, world record. You can't be, you know, the first person to go in space, but there's still so few astronauts that even the world's worst one has a couple of world records under his or her belt. Here's an even crazier tangent for you. What? I was thinking this weekend about the old movie The Jerk with Steve Martin. <laughs> yes. And, that yeah. cra- and particularly, I was thinking of that crazy brown and yellow Trans Am that he was driving with uh, that big hat with a feather yeah, and everything yeah. after he was spending his money. Mm-hmm. Do you recall when he was trying to find some information at the bank? Like, they were asking him for forms of ID, and he pulled out of his wallet. And I, I love this line. Like, he pulls out a few things, and one of them was an astronaut application card. And, said, <laughs> and he says, like, under his breath, he says, I'm like, failed everything except for the name on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's going on you know, like through everything in his wallet, but astronaut application card. That's so yeah. funny. I always remember that line from that movie. I don't know why. It's stuck well, in my head. <laughs> I, you know, I've got to watch that movie again. But I, I bring up this almost completely unrelated thought to say that, you know, with world records, uh, attempting them is, I think, in its own way prestigious, especially if you get this this close and you have this history and this legacy. So. I like to think that he will get it. He's certainly not the world's worst racer. I really, really hope he gets this because mm-hmm. there's so much tied to this. I mean, he's he's driving the car that he and his dad worked on and were, were scheduled to make a run when his father was murdered yeah. to take over the record that he had previously. It's like there's just so much working for this that... I really, I really, really hope it works out for him. I hope that I hope that he gets this record, and I know that he, I know that he will. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen. So, 2016 will be the mm-hmm. next attempt. We'll see how it goes. Then, um, there's so much about the Challenger too. I'd like to talk about now, but we don't have time. Yeah, maybe that's its own podcast. Who knows? Because it's a yeah, fascinating vehicle. It is. It looks really cool too. And it, it, a lot of these land speed uh, vehicles. If, if you haven't checked out our Bonneville Flats, uh, episode yet, a lot of these land speed vehicles look like planes just on the ground. Sure. And that's part of the record is that they, they check to make sure that the wheels remain on the ground. Right. During this, because otherwise it's a low flying plane mm-hmm. and thus no land speed record. Yeah. Otherwise it's a, it's, it might as well be a hovercraft, but, yeah. but, uh, Rat Fink, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we didn't get to everything that we wanted to cover, but uh, the Mickey Thompson story is one that should be told. And thank you for giving us an opportunity to do so. This uh, this makes me want to go look at Mickey Thompson tires again for my car. I used to, in high school, this would yeah. have been, and this is weird, Ben. Okay. It was right around the same time, around the late 1980s, around 1987, 88, 89, I was at a place in Michigan looking at like performance tires and stuff like that, mm-hmm. dreaming because you know as a, a high sure, school kid, sure. these tires were expensive. They were nice drag racing tires, but they were Mickey, Mickey Thompson competition tires, and they were like four hundred bucks each or something wow. like, each back in the nineteen eighties. And I was thinking, you know, this would be so cool to have it on your street <laughs> car because I had you know a cool car at the time, and I thought well, this would be really fun. Yeah. Um, but you know, right around that time was when he was murdered. I mean, it was such a, just a strange thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. cause I was used to seeing that name all over the place. And then suddenly this guy that I just learned about, you know, a year prior or whatever is gone. And, uh, this fascinating story, but, but we didn't know the, the story or the evolution of the story until now, really, because Decades it's, just, later. it's just now coming to a head. It's just now wrapping mm-hmm. up. Right. Uh, which means it still might not be over. And, uh, as long as Danny Thompson is also racing, then I think the story continues. Now, Scott, you know that I, too, can uh, not reasonably afford uh, a full set 
those Mickey T's. Oh yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I've also, I've also looked at them kind of enviously. Uh, it's a, it's a, sort of a depressing episode of Stuff Ben sees, so well, we'll, we'll how save it the, uh, for another day. How would the Monte Carlo look with a pair of Mickey Thompson drag slicks on the back? Are you kidding? It'd look awesome. Oh, man. It would, yeah. Any car would look great with that. It would, it would be a life changer. It's I'd have to do some other work just for the car to be worth those tires. A life changer. I like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, it would change the game, at least, if not the life. Guys, we hope that you enjoyed this one. Uh, we know we went a little long on it, but if you would like to learn more car stuff, you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter, where we get some of our best suggestions for future episodes. You can also check out every podcast we've ever done uh, on our website, carstuffshow.com, which reminds me, Scott, people have asked us to start numbering these mystery shows. Oh, they that's like a good them, idea. They like them, but they want the numbers on them. So you, me, and Noel will get on that. So Definitely. people know so what's the, going So uh, it like Ben's Mystery Show number four, number sure, five, or whatever. Sure. It's easier yeah. to sort that way. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's a decent request because I looked through and, it was, and I noticed that we do have just Mystery Show a couple times. Yeah, only a few of them so far, but uh, if we we get into you know deeper into this it's going to be really really difficult to sort them out yeah so let's let's nip it in the bud great idea <clears throat> so uh there's another great idea somewhere out there and it may be one that you've cooked up while you're listening to this so what's going to be our next best episode of car stuff let us know via social media or you can write to us directly we are car stuff at howstuffworks.com more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at Viking.com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.